we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. It is your host, Yusuf, here, and I have an amazing uh, both academic and organizer, uh, activist, uh, Professor Alex Vitali from CUNY, the City University of New York. Really, really, really excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us on Afro Futures. My pleasure. You know, we haven't gone back ages, <laughs> but I've gotten a chance to kind of get to be familiar with your work, your literature. Um, one of the most recent writings, The End of Policing, which we definitely want to discuss today, I think both as an understanding of how the kind of reform efforts of the 90s and 2000s um, across several presidencies and, and local administrations haven't been effective at really addressing the root natural, the root causes of police violence and, and be interested in just getting your analysis of where we are today. Um, but I, but I, I've gotten also the chance to informally meet you through social media, the brilliance of social media. Uh, and so I want to talk about all of it. And, and, and I think um, you're the best person uh, to do that. So thank you for joining us today. I think we're going to have a great chat. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So let's just get right to the book, right? The End of Policing. It's a pretty <laughs> clear title with, with unapologetic approaches to it. Um, why did you write the book? You know, and, and what is its, its kind of major thesis for folks who are trying to understand how do we go from a world where policing is the, the status quo and, and, and to the point of us kind of continuously shelling out millions of dollars of city budgets for it um, to, to where that is in the future and what that looks like. So, you know, I've been working on policing issues for, for over 30 years now, starting in California in the late 80s, early 90s, in public policy, and then in academia. I've worked with police departments and human rights and civil rights groups and community groups all over the world on these issues. I've published in the policing journals, et cetera. And all of that just made me incredibly pessimistic about the potential for what we think of as police reform to make a meaningful difference in the lives of folks in heavily policed communities. I don't think that the kinds of reforms we hear about, community policing, anti-bias training, hiring a few more black police officers, body cameras, are gonna give people the kind of relief that they think they're gonna get. And so I said, I think someone should lay out both why police reform is not gonna fix the mess that we're in and what we could do differently. And the what we could do differently is, is that we could look at the specific kinds of crime and disorder and safety problems we face community by community and look at the very real credible evidence-based strategies that we could use instead and that don't come with all the negative collateral consequences that are kind of inherent to policing, the, the use of violence, 
the effect of criminalization on folks in terms of their long-term well-being, et cetera. And at the end of the process, what I found was that, you know, the vast majority of what we ask police to do today is really a bad idea, is very harmful, and we have credible alternatives that we should be pursuing instead. I mean, that kind of sounds like common sense. It sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty simple, but it, yet it seems that even when, when there are incidents that bring national, even global attention, like the public lynching of George Floyd, right? Like the various types of issues that go beyond George Floyd, previous to George Floyd, from Tamir Rice to Sandra Bland, when the, the popularization of, or, or the kind of more in our face about the amount of police violence exists, using digital technologies to kind of connect people, camera phones, that's been, that's played a major role in, I think, the public thinking that, um, or knowing implicitly that there's something wrong here um, and that there there's a need to fix it. But what is the fix, right? Because at, almost at the same time that we see these incidents of violence, at, at the same time that we see these incidents of a Tamir Rice, where we see changes in New York State's bail law, where we see like trying to shift us towards you know, two summers ago, defund the police. There's an immediate response at the moment of when, when there's an opportunity for us to both have a serious conversation about what brought us to these issues or to the challenges that we face in policing, but also how do we get us away from it? Um, and I, I, I guess it's simple to be referred to as copaganda, but copaganda kind of really um, is, is an art that kind of mixes um, the, the desires of police unions and politicians and the media to kind of justify the kind of business as usual cost. So can, can you just like at a high level explain what propaganda is and, and how has from the end of the civil rights era to today, policing been able to continuously make the case against the types of changes that you're, that you, that you're talking about in end of policing? Yeah, so that, there was a lot there. So let me, let me first just take a step back and say, you know, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, when Eric Garner was killed in New York, Tamir Rice in Ohio, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Sandra Bland in Texas, right? And during that period, we were told policing was going to get fixed. President Obama created this task force on 21st century policing that made all these kinds of procedural reform recommendations. And a lot of these got implemented here in New York. We got implicit bias training, body cameras, de-escalation training. You know, the officers that killed George Floyd had had de-escalation training, implicit bias training, were wearing body cameras, were operating under a new, more restrictive use of force policy. They'd had mindfulness training, et cetera. And it just didn't make any difference. And so that's why the calls that summer of 2020 were not more money for police body cameras. They were calls for how do we divest ourselves from the use of police to address every social problem under the sun and invest instead in creating safer and healthier communities for people by guaranteeing adequate health care, mental health services, making sure young people have high quality recreational opportunities that they're pathways to credible employment and, and all the rest, things that people know will make their lives better. Well, of course, 
these ideas got a, a, an initial hearing in a very large public conversation at the national level. Uh, but quickly, the mainstream media, the center of the Democratic Party, and yes, the police unions realized that they oppose these ideas. That, that they don't want to move away from a kind of politics of austerity that uh, relies on tax cuts for the rich and cuts to essential services to drive the global economy. And so there was a tremendous backlash. And that backlash has taken a variety of forms, as it always has, right? So it's important to keep in mind here that support for police-centered public policy is not just a product of police unions. They are sometimes the most visible expression of this, but it's every night on the nightly television. Every police drama, every television news program, the statements of elite politicians across the country are all linked to a kind of commitment to using police to manage what are essentially social and economic problems. So copaganda takes forms like the co-production of police shows with police departments. Going back as far as Dragnet and Adam 12, which were co-produced by the LAPD, to more recent shows like Cops and Live PD that are co-produced by local police departments across the country. Those shows can't be made without the direct participation and cooperation of those local police departments. And as a result, that frames the presentation of policing because if those shows ever presented policing in a truly negative light, no police department would agree to host those shows anymore. But it also takes this form of kind of an elite academic discourse that says that we have to support a kind of conservative mainstream liberal worldview that very uncritically accepts this idea that the law benefits everyone equally, that policing exists to enforce the law, and that if there are any problems with that system, what we need is to invest more money in policing for more professionalization, more technology, more oversight mechanisms, more training. Uh, and this has played a major role in propping up the centrality of policing as the tool to manage you know, every problem in American society. And so how do we counteract all this propaganda? Well, I think what's proven most effective is when face-to-face -face community organizing happens in communities with real public safety problems around working with people to really put on the table those things that they think would, would make their community safer and healthier. And what we find is when we put everything on the table, when we don't limit the conversation to policing or nothing, that policing falls down to the bottom of the list. And I'll just end with one example from upstate New York in Ithaca, the Ithaca plan around drugs. The mayor there knew that policing was not working. It was not saving lives. It was not preventing overdoses. It was not ending the, the availability of drugs. And he said, what if we put everything on the table? And he brought in some experts from the Drug Policy Alliance, from academia, to talk about all the potential options that could be available. 
And then they went out to the community and they held town halls and focus groups. And they put together what's called the Ithaca Plan, a comprehensive way of thinking about drug problems in Ithaca and policing just doesn't figure in it at all. It's about harm reduction strategies, targeted economic development, widespread availability of drug testing and other kinds of public health interventions. Yeah, it's kind of um, just common sense stuff, right? Where where it, it, it seems, and, and you know, we in Syracuse were a part of a lot of, a lot of the conversations statewide with respect to trying to re-envision policing as former former Governor Cuomo's kind of executive order at, at the response of George Floyd uh, and his killing. And 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 it, it's I think what Ithaca put forward it was really important and significant. Yet other communities around the state uh, took different models and and in, a, in essence kind of tried to identify opportunities to kind of double down on. So the the problems or the kind of like talking points of more body cameras, which you know I I think are important, but also are not. They're not the, the silver bullet to these issues, right? You know, implicit bias training is important, police residency is important, but aren't going to solve the root fundamental issues that that are being presented. So I I, I think at a local level it's clear, and even what some of the states are doing, but it, it also seeps into the national discourse because now. We're having a conversation across the country about the rise of violent crime, um, about the types of reforms that have happened in New York State around bail reform and, and the kind of continued chipping away at that that law, uh, and, and how there there's a sense that we need we need to in, in the budgets increase the amount of dollars to policing, while also at the same time not talking about the child tax credit increases, while also not talking about some of the other benefits that that you and others talk about as needing to replace. The, the institutions of policing as we know it today. How, how, how did you feel when one of, one of the, 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 the moments in, in the hearings on, on Kentaji Brown Jackson, you, you and your book were mentioned, and I think it kind of neatly fits into this kind of nationalization of the propaganda campaign. Well, first, I, I just want to push back a little bit on the reforms you mentioned as being inadequate. I think that we really, with some of them, we want to say that not only are they inadequate, they actually don't work and are in some cases harmful. And one of these is implicit bias training. We, we now have a growing body of evidence that shows that not only does it not work, but in some cases, officer behavior is worse after they receive this training. So even the people who created it and have implemented it over years have come out against it. And yet departments continue to plow millions of dollars into it because it's a form of propaganda. It's a way of saying to communities after something terrible has happened that don't worry, we're going to fix racism in policing. We're going to give them two hours of implicit bias training and see we hired this black person to give them the training. And so everything's OK now. So it's a way of diverting our attention from the real conversation. And that's true with most police reforms. They're not even really intended to work. They're intended to forestall public criticism of policing. And even their proponents use this language, not that this is going to make policing better or provide more justice. They say it's going to restore community trust in the police. Well, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in reducing the harms of policing 
and making communities safer. And these trainings don't do either of those things. So back, back to your, you know, the latter part of your question about this national conversation. So, you know, prior to 2020, there was a huge amount of organizing happening around the country around alternatives to policing, getting the police out of schools, getting them out of traffic, getting them out of mental health services, getting them out of the homelessness business, getting them out of the drug business, immigration detention, sex work, et cetera. These campaigns were underway. Some of them were winning, but very quickly this got elevated to front page news in a way that no one strategically had been preparing for. We were waging local campaigns targeting local decision makers, right? Because policing is a local matter in the U.S. The federal role is pretty much irrelevant. And so people were not in a position to ward off a full-scale assault by the national media, the, the, the punditry of both parties, et cetera. And so very quickly, they were like, in terms of the national conversation, this idea is canceled. However, these campaigns are still going on. Since 2020, about 40 cities have eliminated their school police departments. Dozens of cities have created new non-police mental health outreach teams, including major cities like Denver, Harris County, which includes Houston. You know, this is, uh, we have a pilot program here in New York. LA is moving in this direction, San Francisco. You know, this is a major thing that's happening. Dozens of cities are pouring significant amounts of money into community-based anti-violence efforts independent of policing. Cities like Philadelphia and Berkeley, California are getting the police out of traffic enforcement in significant ways. So those are the actual things that the movement is demanding and we, we're actually winning them. But there's still this meta-narrative in the national media that's like crime is up, therefore these ideas are canceled. But in fact, our argument is, is that the increase in crime just shows that policing doesn't keep us safe because police departments were not defunded despite the rhetoric. We have millions of police. We have this massive infrastructure of policing. And when times get tough, policing does not work. It did not keep us safe. It did not prevent this big uptick in homicides during the pandemic. So then to think that after policing is so clearly failed that the solution is more money for policing just shows this is about ideology. This is about larger political interests and not about public safety. Yeah, I mean, I, I, first, thank you for both the clarity on on just the ways that propaganda presents itself, even in some of the reform demands that, that, that come out. So that was that was super instructive and I think exemplary of what ways and tactics things are, you know, leveraged to kind of help push this agenda in, in, in what seemingly seems like a good faith effort at changing it. So far, we've talked about, you know, just like why like the reforms don't work and why those ideas are kind of help to kind of recreate and facilitate for propaganda issues. I, I'm interested in the way that and the politics of race are used in these moments. Because I think that's the specific way that it expresses itself that I think is even more insidious. That, you know, we talk about the institution of policing and it's often talked about, whether from the national law enforcement 
museum or, or others, right, as like centered around, you know, social stratification, centered around race. And so why is it that, is, is race another proponent as to why it's so, it's so easy as a, as a tool to use to help facilitate for these? Like what, what is the relationship between race, the politics of race, and the continued calls at local, state, national levels for continuing expansion of policing? So you, you mentioned the Supreme Court hearings in the Senate and, and Ted Cruz's, you know, cynical use of my book to try to attack the nominee, Katenji Jackson Brown. I wrote a piece very quickly the next day for The Nation about, not about my book, but about the politics of race that was playing out in that moment. And what I said was, is that we need to understand how the right wing understands race and how they mobilize race in this really disingenuous way. So their view is that anyone who complains about racism in America is actually re-legitimating the idea of biological racial differences, what they call race essentialism, right? So if I say there's a problem of racial disparities in the outcomes of policing, what I'm doing is I'm just legitimating that there are these biologically separate races. And so what they claim they're doing is they're promoting colorblind neutrality. We don't see, you know, Ted Cruz was one of these guys in high schools who says, oh, I don't see race, right? And we know what a load of, you know, what that is, right? That's a way of saying, don't challenge my white privilege. So the Republicans are attempting to shut down any conversation of race. And that's what the whole attack on critical race theory is. It has nothing to do with the legal scholarship of critical race theory. And the idea that my book was held up as an example of, of you know, this particular school of legal scholarship, in a way, it just shows how disingenuous this all is, because my book is a book about how the criminal legal system reproduces racial inequality in the United States. Because race is not a biological fact, it is a social fact, which is that people racialize other people and treat them differently based on that assessment, which is often biologically, quote unquote, inaccurate, right? They don't People are misassessed all the time. So that's why we say people are racialized, right? Because there's, there's all kinds of gray areas and, you know, uh, you walk into my classrooms and you say, well, this is filled with African-American students and my students will raise their hands and they're like, actually, we're, some of us are from Africa. Some of us are from the Caribbean and some of us are from Southern India. Right. Just because our skin is darker than yours does not mean we are African-American, for instance, though, of course, because of the social pressures of American society over time, they become marked as African-American. Uh, OK, so the trick here, right, is that we have to point out the ways in which these social facts produce radically different life outcomes for people. Yes, slavery was incredibly important in shaping all this, but again, the right wants to say, well, slavery is something that happened 200 years ago. It's irrelevant now. 
They want to erase the history of convict leasing, Jim Crow, prison farms, the ghettoization of northern cities, the refusal to allow African Americans to get FHA loans and, and, and accumulate wealth through housing. They want to ignore redlining. They want to ignore discrimination in housing, education, and employment that exists right now. And the way they do that is to say, oh, you're just ginning up racial essentialism, and we don't believe that race exists as a valid category. That is the part that kind of makes it, I mean, each each part of this is continuously infuriating, but that's a part of the part that makes it frustrating for me because it, it, it becomes even more insidious when they help to legitimize, I think, their perspective by have re- leveraging really communities that are looking for solutions to real problems like gun violence and homicides in their neighborhoods. And they're using those communities as a tool to continue to oppress those communities. And I've often thought about it as uh, oftentimes, and I can, I can say from relatively personal experience, you know, my brother was being from the Bronx, my brother was killed right outside of my apartment building and on Featherbed Lane. And that doesn't, make me feel even more comfortable that I would need to entrust in adding more police to make my neighborhood feel safe. Because that very same department was also the department that (laughs) helped to arrest a brother of mine, a nephew of mine, et cetera. And so oftentimes these communities aren't given any other solution besides more police and then are used as like a a friction point to try to continue to call for more police. Are you seeing that happening now? I mean, I, I think intuitively I know that. I think, I look, you know, anecdotally I know that. I, I think it's I think it's a national issue, and, and I'm curious as to how communities are co-opted and the way that they're co-opted to continue to disintegrate opportunities for change that that, that they would normally call for. Well, I think you know you 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 hit a big part of it on the head there, right? We have communities that have been systematically disinvested in, have been abandoned in really important ways and have been discriminated against and actively exploited. And then they're told that their problems are the the result of crime and that the solution to all the problems in the community are more police. And the only tool that's available to them to address the insecurities in their lives is more policing. And so then when they hear, oh, we want to defund the police, or we want fewer policing, or we want alternatives to policing, all they hear is, oh, you want to take away the one thing we've been told that we can have. And even though we have an ambivalent relationship with that one thing, we have a lot of crime and insecurity in our lives, and we would like something to help us with that. And that's why I said before, what's so important in these conversations is to get to the point where you talk to people about what if you could have what you really wanted. And when you have have the time to pursue a process and to bring in some information and some examples, when you have that process, policing falls down to the bottom of the list because people do have a lot of ideas about the other kinds of things that they think would make their community safe, but they, they know they can't have them. They've been told in no uncertain terms that they can't have those things. You cannot have dramatically better schools. You cannot have stable, affordable housing. 
You cannot have adequate health care. You cannot have community-based mental health services. You cannot have high-quality after-school programs. But if you want some more police, we'll give you that. And that just fundamentally shapes this conversation. And, and you know, in combination with, as you said, all the copaganda, uh, you know, there was recently my, my buddy Alec Karakatsanis at Civil Rights Corps pointed out that there are 68 full-time employees at the LAPD who do nothing but promote the LAPD to local media. You know, there's like, San Francisco, which has like 650,000 people, has like six full-time employees in the police department who just do this. The top paid person makes like a quarter of a million dollars a year to promote the police department at the expense of all other spending, right? So the police are actively out there selling this idea that they're the solution to every problem. Yet at the same time, <laughs> costing significant amount of dollars and harm to communities. I mean, it's, 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 it's deeply disconcerting and and, and <laughs> it's very frustrating. It's very it frustrating. Is. It's it's a continued cycle, I think, of of disenfranchising those communities. Um, and I, I think we in Syracuse have tried to keep the focus on the budget, trying to center the different options that we invest in or that we could divert funding from police towards. I mean, it, largely the organizing efforts are continued through a collective called Spark. Um, and, and we'll have them on the show um, soon because I think what, what has helped to kind of center my understanding as well as the groups in Syracuse's work around some of these issues are, are really getting to engaging with community to help re-envision what that ought to look like. Um, and they're doing tremendous work. In the last few minutes we have uh, Alex, you know, I I spent some of the time that I worked at ACLU of New York or NYCLU um, thinking about the relationship between surveillance and technology and, and, and race and, and policing and how those issues converge collectively. And I think there's a lot of both literature about the way that surveillance technologies impact communities. I mean, I think the Black community is intuitively keen in understanding. I mean, from our experiences of COINTELPRO beyond the Muslim community under the war on terror. And a lot of these issues have become even more front and center for people under gang databases and their kind of recognition of gang databases and the understanding of how that has helped in immigration problems and writ large with trying to recruit and, and really implicate communities of color and marginalized communities in, in, in schools and immigration beyond. So I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in trying to get your thoughts on not just the, the gang databases, but what's, what's the new direction this is going? Because it seems that NYPD's gun database is, is one harbinger of this, especially as the national conversation is around the increase in gun violence, but there are other forms of surveillance. And I'd be interested in just seeing what, what you're seeing as the, the, the direction of, of this particular space. Yeah, so, you know, the gang database issue is a big issue for me. The policing and social justice project that I coordinate helped found the Gangs Coalition here in New York, and we, we wrote a report a couple of years ago about just how harmful, ineffective, and counterproductive gang databases are and big gang conspiracy cases that rely on a lot of social media surveillance, closed-circuit television surveillance, etc. And so, this is a way of framing youth problems 
as gang problems to be suppressed through mass incarceration and intensive policing. It's a way of saying to the community, the way we make you safer is to criminalize all the young people in the community, which is what we've seen with these huge gang takedowns of 80, 100, 125 young people arrested all at once under really dubious charges, it turns out. But this is just the, the front door of a much larger problem. The NYPD and other police departments around the state are embracing various kinds of predictive policing algorithms uh, and other forms of databases that they're using to quote unquote, you know, identify young people at risk of involvement in violence and then subjecting them to harassment, intensive surveillance, enhanced penalties, uh, rather than targeting them with trauma counseling, tutoring services, income supports, mental health services, which would actually make their lives better and the community safer. We're also seeing more interest in facial recognition technology. And the mayor here in New York wants to put in these, you know, metal detector type of devices, devices, totally unproven technology that's going to be filled with false positive hits, which is really just a theater of safety, like bag searches on the Safeway. It provides no safety to people, will never prevent any kind of terrorist attack, uh, but manages to scoop up people who happen to have some weed in their backpack, manages to scoop up people who, who are carrying a utility knife for work and are getting arrested in these bag searches. So this, we're just going to see more of this. this. This technology doesn't work. And even if it did work, it comes with huge costs and fails to consider alternative ways of managing these problems. So uh, we have a bill that was just introduced at the city council in New York City to ban the gang databases there, including this new grip list that is even more, much more intensive list. Uh, and we hope to have a similar bill at the state level. In addition, there, the, there's a coalition of privacy groups in New York that's pushing back against facial recognition, gun detectors, and, and the rest in the subway. And uh, we'll, we'll be having a rally at New York City City Hall on June 7th to kind of kick off a major initiative against these forms of intensified surveillance and predictive policing. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, just remind people again uh, on, on, on the date of the rally so we can we can make sure folks know about it. Yeah, it's June 7th at 9 a.m. at City Hall in New York City. Thank you again for being here, sociologist, activist, brilliant author, um, and, uh, and, and uh, now a, a new guest on the Afro Futures podcast. Alex Vitale, really appreciate the conversation today. You're most welcome, Yusuf. Thank you for listening after Futures. This is Yusuf Abdul-Kadir, and we are produced by Kevin Kloss by WAER.